A Tiny Revolution features adults having adult conversations, which means adult language is probably going to be present, just so you know. Welcome to another episode of A Tiny Revolution, celebrating our everyday victories while telling the stories and having the conversations that actually matter. My name is Kevin Garcia. I was recently thinking about um, the actual reason why I started this podcast over six months ago and over 30 episodes ago. And first of all, it hit me that this is episode 31. Like, that's incredible that there are so many amazing humans out there and so many awesome ideas that get stirred up that I, that we can create something with this, you know? Um, and a couple weeks ago, it, it really hit me, um, about the title of this podcast, why I called it a tiny revolution. And it's, it's this, every single revolution starts with conversations between friends. These big ideas that we hope catch on with the rest of society always start with just one-to-one conversations between people who are just being people. And whether you're new to conversations like this or you've been tracking with a tiny revolution for a while, I want you to know that you're a part of this. Like You are a part of the revolution. You, in your own small way, you are helping create tiny revolutions in your communities, in your church, in your family, or maybe you're just looking for a tiny revolution inside of yourself. So whatever that looks like, um, I just want to tell you that my hope for this podcast whether it's me having a conversation with an incredible person like we're having today, or it's uh, the teachings that I put out. I hope that this podcast is helping give you a better, more joyful, more life-giving, more revolutionary life. So, and today, um, it's it's definitely one of those kinds of conversations. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Robin Henderson Espinoza, a queer, non-binary, trans-Latinx person, public theologian, and incredible activist who is working to make the conversations around theology and justice more accessible to the people on the streets. But before I get there, uh, I wanted to continue to plug what's coming up soon. The Wild Goose Festival is happening July 14th and 16th and hot. 14th through the 16th, excuse me, in Hot Springs, North Carolina. I'm going to be doing two workshops. The first one is Saturday at 11 a.m. under the landing tent, and that is going to be Owning Your Story, Impacting Others, where I'm going to be doing a little bit of preaching, a little bit of teaching, definitely some cussing, and talking about Jesus as as I do, as you do. Um, but that, that one's really going to be focused on some practical ways on having conversations with people who are different from us, and also ways of... Um, moving the conversation past what do you believe and asking better questions about how you are living. The second workshop is also on Saturday. It's going to be at 1.30 under the youth tent, and it's called Know Thy Selfie, where we're going to be having conversations about parasocial relationships, the importance of proximal community, and ways we can use the internet to better connect in authentic ways. If you haven't got your tickets yet, you can go to wildgoosefestival.org, and if you still haven't purchased them, you can use the offer code BEMYGUEST, that's in all caps, and you can save 25% off at checkout. Again, that's wildgoosefestival.org. Check it out. I'll see you there, and I'm going to be the one walking around with blue hair, so if you see me, go ahead and describe me, give me a big old hug or something like that, and say hello. I'm probably going to be nasty, though. Like, Wild Goose is like the time of year when I don't really, like, get pretty for anything. 
I am so excited to be sharing this conversation with you today. I might suggest that you actually go listen to the Queerology podcast from last week. That's a podcast by Matthias Roberts. His guest last week was Dr. Robin Henderson Espinosa, and that's the same person I'm going to be talking to today. And that was just honestly pure coincidence because me and Matthias are sisters, and so we just kind of sync up on things like that. Um, But I feel like this podcast today that you're going to listen to is kind of a continuation of the conversation they started on Queerology podcast. So go check that out in your podcast app or wherever you listen to your podcast and subscribe to them, listen, rate them, all those good stuff. And if you don't want to listen to that podcast, well, that's cool. But uh, you're just missing out. Just saying. (laughs) Okay, so let's jump into this conversation. Uh, A little bit about Dr. Robin before we jump in. Knowing intimately that the borderlands are a place of learning and growth, Dr. Robin draws on their identity and heritage as a queer Latinx in everything that they do. From doubt to divine and everywhere in between, their call as an activist theologian demands the vision to disrupt homogeny and colonist structures of multi-layered oppression. As an anti-oppression, anti-racist, non-binary, transgressive Latinx person, Robin takes seriously their call as an activist theologian and ethicist to bridge together theories and practices that result in community responding to the pressing social concerns. Robin sees this work as life-orienting vocation, deeply committed to translating the theory to practice and embedding and reimagining our moral horizon to one which privileges the politics of radical difference. Now, as an activist scholar, Dr. Robin travels the country doing activist theology and continues to write for both the academy and the public square. Whether speaking to faith communities, universities, or communities, or writing for the Huffington Post or religion dispatches, Dr. Robin uses tools learned in both the academy and in activism to stand in the hybrid space of faith communities, academy, and movements for justice, curating activist scholarship with deep intention of bridging with difference. This work is important to Dr. Robin because their own life has been lived with the ongoing challenge to be grounded in the center of their own difference as a non-binary trans mixed-race Latinx. This has required the thoughtful intention of bridging with their white ancestors and Mexican ancestors and with those in the queer community. As a result, their life's vocation is one that is committed to deep relationality of bridging with those differences. Dr. Robin holds a PhD in Constructive Philosophical Theology and Ethics, researching the domains of ethics, ontology, and epistemology for the study of religion and philosophy, and is currently working with the Faith Matters Network. And after that brilliant introduction, let me just say welcome to this conversation. And uh, just a little bit of a content warning. Um, In this conversation, Dr. Robin and I talk about their story, what motivates their work, our mutual hopes and dreams for the future. We do touch a little bit on the the Pulse shooting that happened last year very briefly, Um, but again, just a little bit of a content warning there if that's something that's really triggering for you. And we also talk about their new book coming out next year, Activist Theology. And so now that I've talked your face off for the first seven minutes of this podcast, I am going to, yeah, let's jump into this thing. Uh, This is my conversation with my new friend, Dr. Robin Henderson Espinosa. To kind of like get a Snapchat, oh, Snapchat. (laughs) Can I get a Snapshot or Snapchat? Yeah, yeah, yeah. those are different things. Yeah, I would love to get like like a Snapshot of just your... Your story, how you ended up divinity school, like what led you to becoming a public theologian? 
Well, I certainly didn't sign up for that class in mm-hmm. seminary. Um, it, I mean, I never, I never imagined that I would be doing public work. It was not, it was not something that um, I was trying to do, and it was not something that I was pursuing. I, I mean, I went to, I went to seminary and did the PhD because. I wanted to be in an office by myself doing like doing academic work, doing scholarship. Lo and behold, I I wound up in my first year of my PhD. Well, I mean, let me back up. In college, in college I spent um several years traveling. I don't know what tradition you're from, but I I was born and raised really in the Southern Baptist tradition. And mm-hmm. I, um, I, I grew up in Texas, didn't leave Texas till I was 26 and spent time in college traveling, doing weekend retreats called disciple nows for youth. Mm-hmm. This is like super antiquated language these days, but <laughs> I mean, I was doing like itinerant work then, right? Like traveling and doing itinerant work. Um, but really my heart was like translating Greek and understanding text and thinking about things theologically. Of course, I didn't have that language um, when I was an undergrad. When I went to uh, seminary in Chicago, I studied with Dr. Nancy Bedford and and that is really where or when when and where i fell in love with the study of theology and sinking my feet into the work of the tradition and and was and did some like guest preaching and got invited to come places and whatnot um but nothing on any sort of regular basis and nothing that i thought i would make a life and a career out of it right but my first year, um, I really have to credit this program. My first year in my PhD program, I was involved with the Human Rights Campaign Summer Institute, and it met at Vanderbilt Divinity School, and it was a week of basically queer camp. And it was 12 or 15 LGBTQ students who were in religious and theological schools, either doing a PhD or a master's level program. And, you know, um, Dr. Sharon Groves, who one is a member of my discernment committee and just a dear, dear friend of mine. She at the time was working for the human rights campaign and this was her baby. And she gave birth to what is affectionately called queer summer camp. And I met, I met folks there who have become mentors of mine, people like Dr. Ellen Armour, Dr. Emily Towns, who is uh, the dean now at Vanderbilt. Um, and really, um, that that became the point of departure for my public work, uh, that HRC Summer Institute. We spent a week um, in at Vanderbilt and not only did we sort of struggle to be community together, but we dug deep into what it means to do to do this work as LGBT identified or queer people. It was really 
a moment in my life where things pivoted for me. And, and, you know, after that, I did a more academic um, program. I was invited to be part of what is affectionately called the Mark Jordan Seminar up at Harvard. I spent three weeks there in, in Cambridge working on my craft as a writer, as a queer theologian. And, um, and really I went in those two things, um, the HRC summer Institute was in 2010 and the Mark Jordan seminar was in 2011. Really those two things is what I think became really the pivot point for me becoming a public theologian. Now that also is like still in process, right? Like I have yeah. not arrived. Um, I very much am reminded by those who are dear to me and still becoming, um, which is totally true and legit, but really the, the HRC summer Institute and the Mark Jordan seminar, those were the things that jumpstarted my, my public platform. And in large part, it's, it's, it's because people invested in me. Um, It's because people valued, um, I think my ability to think about um, my own story as one of deep struggle and living in diaspora as a Mexican American person. And also, and also I think I was committed to the discourse of theology and ethics and could honor the complexities therein that, that has, that has really, I think shaped, um, shaped the movement for LGBTQ people. Um, it's never anything that I imagined I would be doing, and and here I am. And here you are, because you're naturally a more introverted person, right? I, yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I can extrovert well, but uh, you know, I mean, I'm trained as an academic, right? I mean, I like to be with my books and my thoughts and my journal and my computer. You know, I'm very happy that, like, I hate to be on the telephone, right? Um, and so if someone has like people know this people in my life who are close to me know that if they want a response from me don't call me like shoot me a text and i will respond so yes i'm more naturally introverted um i spend a lot of time in public sharing my ideas sharing scholarship um you know in my phd program i was always presenting paper not always but frequently presenting papers on different areas of my scholarship. So I, I have learned to negotiate public space, but, but yeah, I'm naturally more introverted and um, I mean, I'm, I'm a five on the Enneagram. So, ah, okay. so, so if you know anything about the Enneagram, you oh, know, that fives, yeah. So you know that fives, you know, tend to feel like the world is an intrusion um, to them. Yeah. So, I, you know, I, I, that is very real for me. And so it's one of the reasons why part of my self-care is to take a siesta every day and to like literally put my phone on do not disturb and, and just rest and unplug. Um, because, because it's a scary world out there and shit is real bad. I'll also just so you know, like where my, my brain works, I'm a, I'm an eight on the Enneagram Mm -hmm. with a strong seven wing. Mm -hmm. So I'm, uh, I'm angry a lot of the time and I like to have fun. That's my... Yeah. <laughs> I one time heard, I one time heard um, a person, a person of color, they are a seven mm-hmm. and 
and he said I'm a seven and we like to vomit rainbows and I was like yes that makes sense to me said that you're bridging bridging with their white ancestors and their Mexican ancestors and those in the queer community. What what does that look like for you um, as you've been as you work through your PhD program and as a public theologian now? Um, how do you bring all these different identities together? Well, I'm always sort of living in the gaps and fissures of the identity, and and I'm always living sort of with both feet in it all, and and never really being consumed by either. I um, I take bridging very seriously. And, uh, you know, I've talked about it in other places and written about it in the past. Um, you know, bridging for me um, in movement work is, is, on the one hand, helping to amplify marginalized voices and, and also helping white folks own their shit and get information. And, and I do that both with a deep attention to building community, a community of radical difference. And I I do that also through just journeying with people and it's messy. It's complex. Uh, it's not, it's not always clear cut. Um, but I do that a, a lot of times through sh- sharing meals with people. Mm. And, and learning to, learning to have meals together. Um, we, I think that the, the more advanced we get in, in our technology, the, the less relational, the less, the less like human relational we are in, in, in like presence, the politics of presence is something that is very, very important to me. So let me say this. I think I think in large part one-on-ones are unsuccessful because it's super duper transactional. And what I would much prefer is sitting down for a deep relational conversation where we may both share each share a story of of how we were impacted by let's say the acquittal of the officer who executed Philando Castile. Yeah, but not something that says, "Okay, I'm going to give you 60 seconds to tell your story, and then I'm going to give 60 seconds to tell my story." I mean, that just feels too transactional to me. And so, I think technology is one of those things that I think has is perpetuating uh, transactional relationship, and and bridging for me is something where I think we can um, sink our heels into a more human presence with one another. So I think that certainly this is something we need in our movement for queer justice. This is something we need for LGBTQ inclusion in our churches and in our other social institutions that that is perpetuating violence against our people. And, you know, frankly, this is something that we need in black and brown solidarity and and figuring out how to be human with one another and and doing so with a deep attention to the politics of presence. One thing you said in 
Matthias's podcast was our community is living in a diaspora with no ability to belong. And you were speaking specifically about how church communities don't build spaces for queer people because they're so centralized on kind of this idea of a nuclear family. Could you, I would love if you could like kind of unpack that. Like, how would you say like within your work of bridging of, of sharing a meal with somebody, would that be like kind of just like the beginning of an antidote to decentralizing marriage within Christian community? I, I mean, I don't want people to get confused around my critique of marriage equality um, as being, as like I'm anti-marriage. I mean, I think we need to remember, so I, I will answer your question, but I want to preface it by saying sure. we, we need to remember that that the the social institution of marriage for Christians, it, it has a theological foundation, one that is rooted in vocation. And so the the problem I have with marriage equality and and other social institutions that are predicated on a logic of the norm is that it's not attentive to call and vocation. It's about it's it's a way in which the state is managing bodies, hmm. and it's a way in which we only become recognizable to the state through this type of relationship. So, you know, this is this is a much larger conversation that I think our movement needs to think about. Um, I am all for um, deep contours of commitment and um, deep expressions of commitment. I have those in my own life. I don't feel a need to to be recognized by the state through a technology of marriage. Mm-hmm. Now, I was married for many, many years and and am no longer married uh but that but my critique of marriage equality is not a critique about commitment i'm right. i'm a deeply committed person um and the people in my life who are family and and movement partners and so forth know that i ride or die with them the thing about the church and the lack of belonging that I think it creates for LGBTQ people is that the church wants to include, quote unquote, include mm. or be inclusive of LGBTQ people, but on their own terms, not right. on the terms of queer people. So so my work around the politics of belonging is that belonging is on the one hand, relational, and on the other hand, it is a two-way street or a three-way street or a four-way street, depending on how many people are in the conversation, right? Mm-hmm. It, in a church, for example, in in like one of the longest-standing social institutions of the world, the church is not the church is not nece- necessarily the pastor or one person, right? The the church is a community, mm-hmm. and so if the community the faith community is saying we want we want all persons to belong then that orientation to belonging has to be negotiated also by those who are wanting to belong to that community I, and i think what people forget is that the movement of lgbt inclusion it also means an exclusion Right. So mm-hmm. whenever we include something, we are fundamentally excluding something. So uh, you see a lot of churches who may split 
over mm-hmm. LGBT inclusion, which is a function of, I think, I mean, it's a violence. It's a violence to the community, right? When mm-hmm. when a community decides to um, to split, um, that is a rupture. It doesn't make way for belonging for all people, right? It it is a rupture that then in in sort of common parlance is oh well the community became more liberal and I was forced out. Hmm. Well, that I mean that's that is not a community of radical difference, right? That's homogenizing our community based on liberal values of 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 the myth of progress, if you will. Mm, yeah. Um, this is a very long conversation around political theology and yeah. how we understand our relationships and, and being, being in community with one another. And I, you know, I just, I want folks to have a chance to belong because that has been my story. I, I have really spent 40 years looking for places to belong and, and the, the most generative places that I have found belonging has not necessarily been in the institutional church, but it's been with people who are, who are willing to live the questions mm-hmm. and who are willing to sit with the complexity. So, for example, a place of belonging in Nashville for me, which is where I'm based at least one day a week <laughs> these days. Yeah. Um, it's also where I get my mail. So, um, or, my ho- or my housemates get my mail for me. Okay, perfect. The table. But a place of belonging for me in Nashville, um, not only is Faith Matters Network and Reverend Jim Bailey and uh, Director of Healing Justice Mickey Scott Bay Jones, whom I adore and they are family mm-hmm. to me, but these three straight white women in Nashville who continually invite me over for meals, for cocktails, for tomfoolery. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't agree on everything, um, mm-hmm. but it has been a place of connection and belonging. And so I think like, wow, what, like, what, what, what has become our failure in the church in, in our, in our move to include people in the name of belonging? Well, we've institutionalized inclusion, right? It's a, it's a whole like movement. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Wow. That one line right there, we've institutionalized inclusion. Yeah. I think I make people uncomfortable on some of this stuff, right? Because I think people want to be so politically correct that they're not willing to look at the complexity of the situation. Mm -hmm. And, And... And I think what happens is we perpetuate the social sin of the logic of dominance. Even even in the move for inclusion. Right. Wow. Yeah. And I think that's um it's a hard place to be, especially for people who embody marginalized identities who um will say and like I'm I know that I've been guilty of this before for I think at the, the beginning of like my journey with trying to be an, an advocate um, within Christian community for inclusion um, but basically uh, basically saying just like, either you're for us or you're against us there's no middle ground there's no uh, place to understand and, and forgetting that behind the people who are trying to figure it out 
and behind exclusive policies are still people who whom God loves. Yes. And at the end of the day, I still have to remember that I claim, if I claim to be a Christian, you know, there's a certain um, way of being, a certain way of mercy that I am supposed to be subscribing to. Mm. Switching gears ever so slightly, you are currently in the process of writing activist theology. For anyone who's not heard of activist theology and the project you're doing with Rebel and your Kickstarter, give a give them a little little spiel. The Kickstarter is designed to both get people engaged in the project of of activist theology and to support the work, the poetry that Rebel is providing for for the book and the book itself it's contracted by Fortress I've been working on it um a little over a year now and and it's really designed to address the theology and ethics of our social movements and and to think about ways that we can really liberate theology from the academy and mm-hmm. and put theology in the street so this is this is uh, it's in many ways classic liberation theology, and in other ways, it's like radically queering liberation theology, mm-hmm. and 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 putting at the center of of liberation theology queers, trans folks, uh, POCs, and looking at not only class but looking at race and sexuality to do this activist theology, this, this sort of radically queer liberation theology. And it's, and it's on some sense exposing what I'm calling the poverty of difference in our theologies and ethics. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is that uh, our theologies and ethics today is, is, is really rooted in white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And it is advocating for a hermeneutics of dominance that is best expressed in all the supremacist logics that we can think of white supremacy, class supremacy, gender, heteropatriarchal, right? Gender, gender supremacy. Um, and, and what I'm trying to do is expose the poverty of difference mm-hmm. in our theologies and ethics and to point people to our social movements to help folks see that actually our social movements have a great moral imagination that we should be paying attention to and that the institutional church, which has been sort of the voice of theology and ethics is in opposition in many respects to our social movements. Um, so I'm a big proponent of what I call the politics of non-oppositionality. It's a term that I, that I uh, borrow from my teacher and mentor, Dr. Ana Louise Keating, who is a Glorian Zadua scholar and served as the director of my dissertation, the co-director of my dissertation. Um, And what we have now, the sort of us against them politics that you mentioned earlier, is the politics of opposition. And what what we know is that we won't achieve collective liberation through oppositional politics. Oppositional politics does not allow for bridging. Um, Mm. And so I move to sort of a third way of non-oppositional politics as a, as a way to do bridging and and expose the the poverty of difference in our social mo- in our theologies, and and get folks oriented to our social movements as places where it's fundamentally dismantling mm-hmm. white supremacy 
It's fundamentally dismantling the logic of dominance. It's fundamentally dismantling um, cis-hetero privilege. Um, and I think we need that in our country, in our world. And yeah. and we need to figure out how to be human with one another again. I think this is one step. If I could ask you to just kind of like imagine like in your wildest dreams, 20 years from now, what, what what would be a hope that you have for our society and our church? Where where, where do you hope everything is headed towards? Yeah, I mean, um, one of my deep deep hopes, and I and I'm a person of deep hope. I'm not a person of hopelessness. Mm-hmm. One of my deep deep hopes is that we would learn to love each other mm-hmm. in in light of our differences. We don't know how to love each other. And and part of the reasons why we don't know how to love each other, I think, is because many of us have cap- have capitulated to the logic of white supremacy mm. and to technologies of white supremacy that, in a sense, don't ever force us to be accountable to our behavior, to our actions. And that results in deep ruptures in relationships. And that results in um, a loss of love. Take, for example, Omar Mateen, who walked into the Pulse nightclub and, and murdered 49 of our siblings. That man lost love. My hope in 20 years is that we will resist capitulating to the logic of white supremacy and the logic of dominance and and losing love. Mm-hmm. And we would return to deep practices of revolutionary love that, that encourage us all to flourish in radical ways. Like, look at the ways we treat each other. My boyfriend and I, he actually had a really, he gave me some really good feedback last night because one of my natural defense mechanisms when people are being horrible or trolling online is to like sarcasm uh-huh. and kind of just like being sarcastic with people who leave like a YouTube comment that's like 1400 words long and like trying to get me to repent of my homosexuality <laughs> and, uh, I'll respond to something sarcastic and he called me last he's like Kevin like I think that you're better than that because it's it's hard it's hard to love people who who don't love you and it's hard to you know it's hard to love those who cause you pain and I look at mm-hmm. like when I look at the queer community especially queer Christians I think that in many ways like we're a missing puzzle piece to what the church could be and has always needed to be, which is a place where just like, we really know how to love. We have yeah. like this emotional intelligence, a spiritual maturity that we've had to gain just through our own survival. Right. That is missing from the body and has been missing for a long time. And it's still in many ways, the body is trying to resist a medicine, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. I just learning revolutionary ways of love. That's so good. I mean, and let's remember, like, I'm I'm not saying we have to agree on everything. That's that's not what this means, right? I mean, c- being in community with one another and practicing revolutionary love 
does not mean that we agree on everything. But what it does mean is that we are united in our deepest differences mm-hmm. and that we're human with one another. And when we get to that point, maybe in 20 years, maybe, but, but, I, but I feel like this is, but Martin Luther King Jr. was asking for people to be human with one another, right? Yeah. Around class issues, right? This is a poor people's campaign in many respects. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I can, I can think, I can think of a handful of people who, who love me in deep ways and we don't agree on everything. And and so much of this work, I think, is about the process of awakening, a deep awakening that starts, I think, with breath and breathing. And mm-hmm. and we have a chance every 20 minutes to awaken in deeper ways if we just breathe. I mean, I so th- this is something that... Um, a member of my discernment team, uh, Reverend Deb, Deborah PV. She is a spiritual director and masterful Enneagram teacher. Hmm. And, and I have, you know, learning the Enneagram from her for several years in, in my own study. And she just reminded me just yesterday when I was in Phoenix, where it was 120 degrees and asphalt was melting. Hell, you were in hell. <laughs> I was in hell, literally. I found the lower bowels of hell and it's Phoenix, Arizona. I'm glad you survived. Thank you for being with us again. Yes. Um, She reminded me that, that breathing is just part of the process of awakening. And when we take a breath, we, we have a chance to unhinge from technologies that force us into ways of thinking that are killing people. Like if, yeah. like literally, like peacemaking, peacemaking is starts really at a process of sitting down and hearing one another into speech, and that takes deep breathing. That takes the practice of breathing, and I think that breathing, breathing is the thing that grounds us in this work. If yeah. we don't know how to breathe with one another then we don't know how to love with one another. Was that not a brilliant conversation? Again, that was Dr. Robin Henderson Espinosa. You can follow Dr. Robin on all the social medias at irobin, that's I-R-O-B-Y-N, and on their website, irobin.com. And you can contribute to their Kickstarter for Making Activist Theology by following the link on the blog, Googling it, or using the link in the show notes. And I have contributed. You should contribute. Listen, $10 goes a long way. They are almost there. And we can do this together, my friends. So that's it. So let's just do a little bit of credit work. This podcast was produced in part by John Gilpatrick and myself, Kevin Garcia. The music from this podcast is from the public domain from the YouTube audio library. And support from this podcast comes from listeners like you through Patreon. If you believe conversations like this are important, if you've enjoyed anything from the blog to this podcast to what we're creating on YouTube now, I would highly suggest that uh, you put your money with the things that you're consuming, you know? Because you wouldn't just go to a Starbucks and buy a latte and just expect not to pay anything for it, right? Um, there's so many creatives out there like myself who are doing a lot of this work 
um, because we believe it's part of our calling, part of our ministry, and it's because we love it. But if uh, if you're benefiting from it, if you are getting any sort of good content, any sort of life-changing experience, I would really welcome any support that you could give to the creation of LGBTQ content on my Patreon. And you can find out all the information and about the rewards that happen when you become a patron at patreon.com slash Garcia, And that link is in the show notes as well. Thanks so much again for joining me. And I hope you'll join me next time for another revolutionary conversation. Uh, my name is Kevin Garcia. I will see you at the Wild Goose Festival in a couple weeks. And yeah, go check out the blog. Go check out the YouTube channel. Like, share, and subscribe. All the things. And if you'd like, I'd really love it if you could leave a review for this podcast in the iTunes store because it really helps with visibility. Again, um, my name is Kevin Garcia, and I love you. I'll talk to you soon. Bye now. I found the lower bowels of hell in its Phoenix, Arizona.